Thank you, John. Good morning. Before we begin, let's, let's offer a prayer to the Lord. God, we thank you that we can gather here today to participate in worship together, to practice for heaven, to praise your glory and your power and your strength through Jesus, our Savior and Lord. As we hear the message today, would you open our hearts and ears to receive what the Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, I'm Pastor Joy. It's really good to see all of you today. And today we are, con we are continuing our sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 7 today, and we are going to read the first part of that in just a moment. But for anyone who might have been jumping in, I want to offer a little bit of context. So this is what's happened in the last six chapters. And just, just so you know, even among biblically literate people, sometimes Nehemiah can be a little bit fuzzy. So feel okay if that is the truth for you. But this is the big picture. God's people have been sent into exile from their homeland because they've broken promises, they've broken covenant with God, they've worshipped other gods. Now, and now, later, some have been permitted to return to the city Jerusalem, which has been sacked. The walls have been partly torn down. The temple has been partly torn down. And Ezra it focuses on the rebuilding of the temple and the first part of Nehemiah focuses on rebuilding the 2.5-mile-long wall around the city of Jerusalem. And, and we got to the end of that last week that they had completed. The wall was finished with the help of our Lord. That's what Nehemiah says. Now, I'm just going to name this because sometimes talking about building a wall can kind of sound political in our context. But I, I really want to continue to invite us all to listen to the story about the building of the wall and what happens next from an ancient context, right? The words are the same, but the context is very, very different. Ancient Near East cities were, of course, very different from cities today. Maybe you think of Chicago, the metro area with 9.5 million people, or even Mexico City, the largest in North America with almost 22 million people. I mean, that's huge, right? That's our world. But in the past, cities were much, much smaller. During the time that Nehemiah is being written, the city of Babylon was about 200,000 people. This is about 430 BC. And, and then Memphis, Egypt was about 100,000. So you can see the difference in city size, right? Much smaller populations. And so at this time, the wall around the city functioned to keep the people inside safe. It was the most basic and crucial protection for city dwellers against wild animals, against invading armies and marauders. Here's a contemporary uh, uh, example. So a few years ago, I was a speaker at a worship conference in Mexico City at, I'll try to pronounce this, I don't have great Spanish, Comunidad Teológica de México. And the event organizers picked me up at the airport and drove me straight to the school, which was a small campus near University City, if you know the geography of Mexico City. And there was a tall iron fence around the campus with a real complicated lock and often a guard there. And there was even another fence inside of that around another part of the campus, a sort of wall within a wall. And my host said to me, do not leave the campus stay here. And so I did. I was safe there. 
I got to know the women who cooked the meals and their grandchildren, and I looked at the landscaping, and I stayed inside the wall, and I did my work without worrying for my safety. And during the conference, the walls around the school allowed everyone to participate in the conference, to sing and dance and worship, to hear and read scripture, to be the people of God together. And that's what the wall is going to do for Jerusalem as well, for Nehemiah in the returning exiles. So now we move to the second part of the book of Nehemiah. The wall has been finished with the help of our God, and now the people need to be built up. So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the word. It will be on the screen, but if you have a Bible with you, I do invite you to open it or use the Pew Bible, they're black or red, so you can follow along, because I'm not going to read the whole thing, and, uh, and I'll show you why. Now, when the wall had been built, and I, this is Nehemiah speaking, had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani charge over Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their watch posts and others before their own houses. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. Then God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who were the first to come back, and I found the following written in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we're going to stop the reading there, but if we continued you would find an almost exact transcript of Ezra chapter 2. It, this chapter in Nehemiah, or this portion, is sort of a book within a book, like, like one of those uh, fiction books where a child maybe goes into the grandparents' attic and finds a cigar box full of letters and then reads one, and the author puts that letter's text within the book. You know what I'm saying? It's like that. So Nehemiah picks up the list, and it's so important to him, full, this list of people from 94 years ago, that he copies it down in our book. So this is what's happened. The wall is finished, the people are safe, and Nehemiah, the bureaucrat that he is, he first does some administration. He appoints his brother and Hananiah as managers over the gatekeepers and gives them responsibility to appoint residents of Jerusalem to guard different posts and houses. And now he is going to work toward reforming the people, the community of God. And God directs it, right? Nehemiah writes, God put it in my mind to assemble the people. Now, really, the word here can also, and I think better be translated, put it in my heart, the heart, the deepest part of the person. But before Nehemiah calls an assembly, he looks at who might show up or the descendants of who might show up, this list made during the first return to Jerusalem in 538 BC, and now it's about 444, 94 years later. And he picks up this list, and he doesn't just read it, he copies it down. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah together, you'll see this almost identical list. And, and then 
God puts it in his heart to assemble the descendants of these people for a gathering in Jerusalem. So this is the list. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of do an overview. People in this list have been organized and counted in various ways. They're arranged by ancestry, right? Who their great-grandparent is, grandfather. So sons of Parosh. 2,172. Sons of Era, 652. I'm just reading some. And then by where they live, okay? So the people who live in Anathoth, 128. People who live in Bethlehem and Natofa, 188. Maybe you recognize Bethlehem. That's why I chose that one. And then there are all these small towns, right? One with just 42 people, one with 1,254 people. And then he counts the priests and the Levites, the the tribe from which the priests come, and the servants and the descendants of King Solomon's servants, the singers. And, And then there's this little part about those who aren't even really sure whose descendants they're from or where they're from, and they don't know their family history or hometown, and so they kind of have to stand to the side for a bit so the priests can figure it out. And then it also includes a count of the livestock. 736 horses, 243 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Those were really important for work, right? And then there's a record of how many gifts were made to the treasury, And then at the end of the chapter, we read, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns. And that's the end of the quote from Ezra 2. So there is a lot of lists in the Bible. You know that? That's the part where you get bogged down when you're trying to go through the Bible in a year. You get to the list and you're like, oh. I mean, especially in the Old Testament. And it can really bog you down in reading. We talk a lot about the inspiration of scripture, but then you get to these lists and you kind of are like, what is the Holy Spirit saying through this? I mean, it might not feel like encouragement. It might not look like instruction. Maybe it can put you to sleep if you have insomnia. That could be a gift of God. But seriously, some of you know this, I love the lists, or at least I would say I love some of the list and that helps me love others. Because the lists remind us that individuals and the groups they're in, the family groups, the neighborhoods, the villages, these groups are important to God, and they're important to God's people. Okay, I'm going to say this again. The lists remind us that individuals and the groups they're in, family groups, neighborhoods, villages, communities, are important to God, and they're important to God's people. The list was important in Ezra 2, and it's important as Nehemiah reads it 94 years later. Because each one of these individuals, the 328 descendants of Hashem, are part of the exiles who have returned home. And in this 94 years since, they have married and had children, and and now the grandchildren probably are going to be the ones who gather in the next chapter. And we don't know. But God knows each of these people's names. God knows their story. And because of this chapter, we know a little bit of that story too. Being part of the people of God, and this is true in the Old Testament and it's true now, is, is it, part of it is our individual identity, but it's also our corporate, our group identity. Our de- identity as a people, plural, gathered together and united in the faithfulness of God. 
So March 2020, when coronavirus was new and it was still being figured out, our congregation stopped meeting together for several months. We led online services from this space right here. It was weird. It was sort of like riding a bicycle while putting it together. But then, at the end of June, when Illinois restrictions changed, we began to meet together again. And we haven't stopped. We, we got these air purifiers. I don't even think this one's on today. Um, <laughs> but we got air purifiers, and we followed CDC recommendations by requiring masks. And, and we met together. We sang in masks, which is hard. And we listened in masks, which is way easier. But we continued to meet together even with these modifications, which I'll tell you I really agreed with and I thought were important for safety. But meeting together, gathering, is part of the lived obedience as God's people, the church united in Christ. One passage that was in many pastors' minds during those few months we stopped meeting together was Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Pastor Simon and Pastor Lars and I did not want to get out of the habit of meeting together. But since then, Christian gatherings have taken a hit we were having struggles before COVID, but I'll tell you, it's harder now. You can see there's continued reports about diminished church attendance as a result of COVID. But as many of us experienced internet church or church at home, which actually is an oxymoron, it's not a good substitute for physically gathering together. I've done it. It's better than nothing. And I do know that for a small number of people who have grave medical concerns, it has really helped them participate in the life of the church in ways that they couldn't before. But I do think that for many, the habit of staying home has overwhelmed the habit of gathering together. Because Christianity is not something you do alone. Following Jesus is a team sport. So imagine if you're on a sports team, and you know this is funny because I have very little space in my brain devoted to sports, um, but a member of your team is like, hey, I'll just practice hitting at home this week. I'll run on the treadmill. I'll practice my swing. I got this. You know it's not going to be as good of a practice if they gather together, right? You know it. I mean, I know from doing workouts at home that I can just phone it in. Nobody knows. It is harder to phone stuff in when I am in a room with other people. And worship is a bit like this. Now, I do want to be careful here because our congregation is an evangelical Protestant denomination, and one of our markers is that we emphasize people's personal relationship with Jesus, right? We emphasize what we might call new birth or being saved or converting to Christ, right? These are all synonyms of the same idea that is an emphasis on a personal, individual choice to follow Jesus, to leave sin and shame at the foot of the cross, and to follow Jesus as Savior and King. I mean, I mean Christianity isn't something you inherit from your parents, even if you were confirmed and married in this church building. 
because you choose, you decide individually to be a follower of Jesus. And in emphasizing the personal relationship with Christ, we also acknowledge that you don't need a priest or a pastor to intercede for you, even though we can and we want to. You can go directly to God through Christ. And this is good and true. And if there's anyone here who's like, I didn't know very much about that or I'd like to learn, please reach out to one of your pastors or a mature Christian, and we would love to talk to you about this. I want everyone in our congregation to know the hope and joy of Jesus through a relationship with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. However, Christianity is not an individual sport. God is in the business of saving a people for himself, and so we're saved into a community, this community called the church. And it's not just about having your name on a membership list. It's about showing up, gathering. And so we do this in obedience to God's command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy when we participate in worshiping God together to pray for and with one another like we just did in the prayers of the people, to give generously as we can of time and talents and to sing in worship whether or not you sing well because God said, the scripture says make a joyful noise, right? Singing is for everyone. And to listen to the spirit in the text together. But when we don't gather together, it can become like a long-distance relationship and romantic relationship, anyone ever had one of these? Two things happen. Either it fizzles away, or you're like, this is terrible. Let's get married. Long distance does not work long time. There's an old pastor story I've heard. So Reverend Brown is out visiting church members who haven't shown up at church in a while. And he visits Mr. Atkinson at home, and Mr. Atkinson warmly invites him in. And it's cold outside, hard to imagine today. But they sit by the fireplace together. And Mr. Atkinson, wanting to avoid any word of rebuke from his pastor, says, you know, it's just so much more blessed for me to sit here by the fire with the Bible and the Holy Spirit and feel God's presence with me. That's what I'm doing on Sunday mornings, Reverend, reading the Bible. So know I'm with you in spirit. And Reverend Brown, saying nothing, takes the fire poker and moves an ember out of the fireplace onto the hearth, and the ember glows a bit, and then less, and then it burns out. The pastor didn't need to say anything, because we burn out without the community. Because our gathering on Sundays is not just about information, it's about participation and formation. Listening to the podcast is not the same as participating in worship because a sermon and worship itself is an act in time. It's an event in which the Spirit moves through the text into the hearts and minds of the gathered people of God. You can't replicate it. You can't reproduce it. This is what physical gathering does. I worked in theater before I was a pastor. Some of you know this. And and there is this strange relationship the actors develop with each audience each night. Each performance event has its own mood and dynamic, and it's like this here at church, but so much more, right, because of the spirit. And this isn't just because of human difference or time of day or mood or weather. It's the Holy Spirit with us gathered as the church, the body of Christ. 
and performance artists, musicians, and actors were hit really hard by the pandemic, and so were churches. These places where presence matters. So this is what I am going to encourage you to do today, my friends, in our conversation about rebuilding. Gather with the church. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There's lots, books, lots of stuff written about what it means to keep the Sabbath holy, but a basic consensus is go to worship, worship God with the community. That's how we keep it holy, right? This means going to worship to God with the community, even if you're traveling sometimes. Part of our rebuilding is gathering with the body of believers. A few months ago during the spring break trip to Arkansas that I went on with my family, we visited an Anglican church in a gated community. And uh, Justin and I were the next youngest people there. Our children were the youngest. And everyone was like, how did you find this church? Well, we Googled. But we were really happy to join them that day to sing hymns and hear scripture with Christians from different walks of life. My friends, participate in worship. Go to church. If you have a cabin and you travel on the weekends, find a church nearby and make that your summer church, right? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But besides obedience to God, there are some very good other reasons that worship is good for individuals and families and communities. So for parents with younger children, a huge indicator if children will be followers of Jesus is the church attendance of parents. And statistically, for dads, dad's attendance is more influential than a mom's attendance. That's just what we have learned. So one way parents can help their children be lifelong followers of Jesus is by devoting themselves to gathering with believers for worship and study and service. But secondly, for all of us, whether you're a parent or not, religious involvement, like worship in small groups, it decreases loneliness and it increases happiness. Because of our isolation these days, the false promises of the information age and this culture of mobility, loneliness is on the rise in our culture. And I know sometimes church can be kind of awkward and you might know, know the song or they might read a long list of names in scripture, but it's really healthy to be with a group of people. And it's really good for mental health to sing whether or not you sing well with others. Did you know this? It's something about inhaling and exhaling together. And so through gathering together, we show obedience to God, but also it is beneficial to us as human beings. And I would say, of course it is. That's how God designed it. And when we gather and worship, we are joining a community that moves beyond the limits of time and space. Worship can be seen as a form of time travel because we are joining with all these lists of names in the Bible and the names in our hymnals, the people who wrote the hymns and the texts, and we join with all the Christians around the world worshiping today and the angels worshiping God in the heavenly realm. We are practicing for heaven. God put it in Nehemiah's heart to gather the people together. And God has continued to do this through the story of Scripture. The church gathered in rich people's homes in Ephesus and Colossae and Corinth and Rome. The church gathered in monasteries and cathedrals. 
The church gathered in fields, in barns, and in hidden places so they're not found. The church that we've partnered with gathered in Shokta, India. The church gathered in, and maybe you have your own church in mind here, a place where God used the people of God to help form you into a follower of Jesus. I think of a little Presbyterian church in West Point Gray, Vancouver, British Columbia, where Justin and I attended early in our marriage, or the church where both my children were dedicated and where God called me to pastoral ministry. Part of rebuilding, my friends, is gathering back together. Let's read this passage from Hebrews again together. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So as we do this, gather together right now, we're going to participate in a gathering practice that Christians have done for centuries and are doing today at different churches. We are going to read together one of our three primary creeds of the church, This this creed, the Apostles' Creed, emphasizes the core story of Christianity, and it articulates our hope for the future. So as you read this with me, I invite you to think about the gathered community throughout the ages who have publicly affirmed our faith together. Now, you might notice in, in this translation of the creed, we'll say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic here is lowercase c. And in this context, it means universal or worldwide, because we're not just saying we here are the church, right? This is the worldwide church. This is the church of Jesus throughout all times and places. So in the spirit of gathering, I invite you to stand, and we're going to read the creed together. And as you say this, I ask you, are you in? Are you in to be part of the gathered community of God as we seek to rebuild together? Let us read. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead. Oh, can someone change? Oh. We'll start with, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I think many of us know this by heart. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now, remembering the saints who have gone before us, let's turn in our hymnals. The words will also be on the screen. To hymn number 767, For All the Saints. 